One of my favorite places on this here information superhighway is David Berman's Menthol Mountains. The blog appears to have more or less served as a notebook where Berman stored articles, quotes, poems, and Johnny Paycheck songs and ephemera galore that perhaps inspired him, moved him, or made him consider something new in that particular moment. I assume it is because Berman saved his words for the page and for his songs that very little of what appears on Menthol Mountains includes his own commentary. For the most part, it is a series of bookmarks. Half of the fun of perusing is trying to understand what about each passage may have resonated and why. In Menthol Mountains, you find a person who spent as much time thinking about the profound as often as he spent considering the absurd. You see a man examining a growing interest in faith in Judaism, considering Talmudic texts and Jewish fables. You find a man who is interested in the intricacies of verse, whether from Mark Strand or Shel Silverstein, a man who was deeply concerned about the role of the artist and of personal identity in the face of whatever we're supposed to call this monstrous phase of capitalism. You find someone who is thoughtful and hilarious and haunted, and that's what resonates the most. Oh, I should say quickly that this is National Demystified. I am your host, Alex Steed. National Demystified is a show in which I get to know the city better. We are brought to you by Knack Factory, a commercial video and content production company, and by We Own This Town, a network of podcasts made by Nashvillians. I've long been a fan of Berman's music and prose, but I think Mountains is my favorite of all of his outputs. His poems and his lyrics underscored the beautiful absurdity of being a mammal with feelings and self-awareness, and they did so in a way that was so equally hilarious and heartbreaking that you wonder how it's even possible to do this gracefully and pull off that feat and to do so over and over again. In many ways, Menthol Mountains appears to be the mirror image of all of that, the bibliography, I guess, of Berman's last 10 years at least. It is inconsistently kept, like all blogs. It starts off ambitious, a post more than every other day. Sometimes there are several a day. And there is a sparsely kept middle. And then there's an uptick in frequency last year that occurred before he died. Specifically, it speaks to me as a person who considers himself a thoughtful and big-hearted person and is profoundly confused by what it is to be a person in these times. I always capitalize in these times when we're talking about these ones in particular because they feel so massive. By way of the various texts shared, there are nods to the absurdity, the economic reality, the complexities, the existential dread, and the hilarity of this very moment. There are dissections of how cuteness functions at the aesthetic level. There are breakdowns of what it means to be an artist in the age of the so-called personal brand. There are more than a few criticisms, ancient and modern, of libertarianism. There are examinations of what success means under capitalism and how and why it can be a trap. And there are loads of Jewish parables that examine how a person should be. In Menthol Mountains, I find a person I also recognize in myself. I am not saying that I am a brilliant artist. <laughs> I am not, but I am someone who is equally horrified and amused by what it is to be a thinking person in this profoundly fucked up moment which shows little sign of getting any less fucked up anytime soon. And despite that, it provides a series of sources that offer insight on how to both embrace our time within it while also rejecting it. And as all of Berman's work contains, there is a lovely dose of humor throughout. And so this is my ode to David Berman and Menthol Mountains. I did something similar in format around this time last year, though that episode was specific to Nashville Focus mentions in the blog. 
This go, I wanted to paint a broader picture of mountains, what it contains, why it resonates so deeply with me, and why I feel like I owe it in Berman a debt. To do so, I reached out to friends and fellow Berman appreciators to help bring it to life. This episode features readings by Caitlin Rose, Tyler Mian Co, Aaron Ray, Jess Skolnick, Sean Nelson, Sarah Marshall, Jack Evan Johnson, Bess Winter, Luke Kennard, Thomas Brian Eaton, Carolyn Kendrick, and we are fortunate to be joined by the Nashville-based painter and Berman's friend, Kevin Guthrie. I should also say that I appreciate Nicole Atkins for helping to honor Berman himself with this week's show illustration. Oh, and one quick note, with the exception of the first passage, which was written by Berman himself, everything that is read in this episode, like most of what appears on mountains, like the vast majority, I should say, is attributed to other authors. You can hear who wrote what and who read each passage at the end of the episode. There will be a long list of credits. This will also be listed in our show notes for today's episode at NashvilleDemystified.com. Okay, that is all that you need from me. Let's do this. Here's a cross-section from Menthol Mountains. FYI, other David Bermans. David Berman, the plastic surgeon, who reattached John Bobbitt's penis. David Berman, mobster and co-owner of the Flamingo Hotel with Bugsy Siegel. David Berman, graphic designer, author of Do Good Design, a book on ethical standards for graphic designers. David Berman, the theoretical physicist. David Berman, television actor, CSI. David Berman, the Irish philosopher. David Berman, 1934 to 2017, was an attorney and accomplished poet who's very different from my own poetry, is nevertheless often accredited to me. Far be it for me to stand in the way of another David Berman. And then there's David Behrman, the electronic music pioneer and minimalist composer. Esteemed gentlemen, I am a poor, young, unemployed person in the business field. My name is Wenzel. I am seeking a suitable position, and I take the liberty of asking you, nicely and politely, if, perhaps, in your airy, bright, amiable rooms, such a position might be free. I know that your good firm is large, proud, old, and rich, Thus, I may yield to the pleasing supposition that a nice, easy, pretty little place would be available into which, as into a kind of warm cubbyhole, I can slip. I am excellently suited, you should know, to occupy just such a modest haven, for my nature is altogether delicate, and I am essentially a quiet, polite, and dreamy child who is made to feel cheerful by people thinking of him that he does not ask for much, and allowing him to take possession of a very, very small patch of existence where he can be useful in his own way and thus feel at ease. A quiet, sweet, small place in the shade has always been the tender substance of all my dreams, and if now the illusions I have about you grow so intense as to make me hope that my dream young and old, might be transformed into delicious, vivid reality, then you have in me the most zealous and most loyal servitor, who will take it as a matter of conscience to discharge precisely and punctually all his duties. Large and difficult tasks I cannot perform, and obligations of a far-ranging sort are 
too strenuous for my mind. I am not particularly clever, and first and foremost, I do not like to strain my intelligence over much. I am a dreamer rather than a thinker, a zero rather than a force, dim rather than sharp. Assuredly, there exists in your extensive institution, which I imagine to be overflowing with main and subsidiary functions and offices, work of the kind that one can do as in a dream. I am, to put it frankly, uh, Chinese. That is to say, a person who deems everything small and modest to be beautiful and pleasing, and to whom all that is big and exacting is fearsome and horrid. I know only the need to feel at my ease, so that each day I can thank God for life's boon, with all its blessings. The passion to go too far in the world is unknown to me. Africa, with its deserts, is to me not more foreign. Well, so now you know what sort of a person I am. Uh, I write, as you see, a graceful and fluent hand, and you need not imagine me to be entirely without intelligence. My mind is clear, but it refuses to grasp things that are too many, or too many by far, shunning them. I am sincere and honest, and I'm aware that this signifies precious little in the world in which we live, so I shall be waiting, esteemed gentlemen, to see what it will be your pleasure to reply to your respectful servant, positively drowning in obedience. Wenzel. On the eve of my 40th birthday, I sat on the porch having a smoke when out of the blue, a man and a camel happened by. Neither uttered a sound at first, but as they drifted up the street and out of town, the two of them began to sing. Yet what they sang is still a mystery to me. The words were indistinct and the tune too ornamental to recall. Into the desert they went, and as they went, their voices rose as one above the sifting sound of wind-blown sand. The wonder of their singing, its elusive blend of man and camel, seemed an ideal image for all uncommon couples. Was this the night that I had waited for so long? I wanted to believe it was. But just as they were vanishing, the man and camel ceased to sing and galloped back to town. They stood before my porch, staring up at me with beady eyes, and said, you ruined it. You ruined it forever. Every author is surprised anew at the way in which his book, as soon as he has sent it out, continues to live a life of its own. It seems to him as if one part of an insect had been cut off and now went on its way. Perhaps he forgets it almost entirely. Perhaps he rises above the view expressed therein. Perhaps even he understands it no longer and has lost that impulse upon which he soared at the time he conceived the book. Meanwhile, it seeks its readers, inflames life, pleases, horrifies, inspires new works, becomes the soul of designs and actions. In short, it lives like a creature endowed with mind and soul and yet is no human being. The happiest fate is that of an author who, as an old man, is able to say that all there was of him of life-inspiring, strengthening, exalting, enlightening thoughts and feelings still lives on in his writings, and that he himself now only represents the gray ashes whilst the fire has been kept alive and spread out. And if we consider that every human action, not only a book, 
is in some way or other the cause of other actions, decisions, and thoughts, that everything that happens is inseparable, connected with everything else that is going to happen. We recognize the real immortality, that of movement. That which has once moved is enclosed and immortalized in the general union of all existence. The thinker, as likewise the artist, who has put his best self into his works, feels an almost malicious joy when he sees how mind and body are being slowly damaged and destroyed by time. As if from a dark corner, he was spying a thief at his money chest, knowing all the time that it was empty and his treasures in safety. A rich man once came to the Mogget of Kosnitz. What are you in the habit of eating? The Mogget asked. I am modest in my demands, the rich man replied. Bread and salt and a drink of water are all I need. What are you thinking of? The rabbi reproved him. You must eat roast meat and drink meat like all rich people. And he did not let the man go until he had promised to do as he said. Later, the Hasidim asked him for the reason for this odd request. Not until he eats meat, said the Magid, will he realize that the poor man needs bread. As long as he himself eats bread, he will think the poor man can live on stones. Someone ate the baby. It's rather sad to say, someone ate the baby so she won't be out to play. We'll never hear her whiny cry or have to check if she is dry. We'll never hear her asking why someone ate the baby. Someone ate the baby, it's absolutely clear. Someone ate the baby because the baby isn't here. We'll give away her toys and clothes. We'll never have to wipe her nose. Dad says that's the way it goes. Someone ate the baby. Someone ate the baby. What a frightful thing to eat. Someone ate the baby, though she wasn't very sweet. It was a heartless thing to do. The policemen haven't got a clue. I simply can't imagine who would go and (coughs) eat the baby. In the 1920s, a Jew travels from his small Polish shuttle to Warsaw. When he returns, he tells his friend of the wonders he has seen. I met a Jew who had grown up in a yeshiva and knew large sections of the Talmud by heart. I met a Jew who was an atheist. I met a Jew who owned a large clothing store with many employees, and I met a Jew who was an ardent communist. So what's so strange, the friend asked. Warsaw is a big city. There must be a million Jews there. You don't understand, the man replied. It was the same Jew. No one likes to be interviewed, and yet no one likes to say no. For interviewers are courteous and gentle-mannered even when they come to destroy. I must not be understood to mean that they ever come consciously to destroy, or are aware afterward that they have destroyed. No, I think their attitude is more that of the cyclone, which comes with the gracious purpose of cooling off a sweltering village, and is not aware afterward that it has done that village anything but a favor. The interviewer scatters you all over creation, but he does not conceive that you can look upon that as a disadvantage. People who blame a cyclone do it because they do not reflect that compact masses are not a cyclone's idea of symmetry. People who find fault with the interviewer do it because they do not reflect that he is but a cyclone after all, though disguised in the image of God like the rest of us. That he is not conscious of harm even when he is dusting a continent with your remains, but only thinks he is making things pleasant for you, and that, therefore, the just way to judge him is by his intentions, not his works. There are plenty of reasons why the interview is a mistake. 
One is that the interviewer never seems to reflect that the wise thing to do after he has turned on this and that and the other tap by a multitude of questions till he has found one that flows freely and with interest would be to confine himself to that one and make the best of it and throw away the emptyings he had secured before. He doesn't think of that. He is sure to shut off that stream with a question about some other matter, and straight away his one poor little chance of getting something worth the trouble of carrying home is gone and gone for good. It would have been better to stick to the thing his man was interested in talking about, but you would never be able to make him understand that. He doesn't know when you are delivering metal from when you are shoveling out slag. He can't tell dirt from ducats. It's all one to him. He puts in everything you say. Then he sees himself that it is but green stuff and wasn't worth saying, so he tries to mend it by putting in something of his own which he thinks is ripe, but in fact is rotten. True, he means well, but so does the cyclone. 1. Draw a circle and ray out from it the abject, the melancholic, the wicked, the childlike. Now, in the zones between, add the erotic, the ironic, the narcotic, and the kitsch. Intersperse romantic-slash-Victorian, the Disney-slash-consumerist, and the biologically-deterministic. At the center of this many-spoked wheel lies a connective empty space. Label it cute. Four. Cute marks a crucial absence. It guarantees, by definition, the non-appearance of malice, premeditation, irony, self-consciousness, accusation, or mercenary agenda. However, in its manufactured form, cute remains a major locus for, in some ways as synonymous with, the manipulative gesture, the prepackaged, consumable demonstration of necessarily factitious innocence, spontaneity, and need. Cute arises by manipulating the guarantee of non-manipulation. Professing its own demure and complete powerlessness, it gains power over and directs all interactions with it. Parents wait upon the infant, not the other way around. Simultaneously referring to and negating its own vulnerability, cute functions as a self-fulfilling system, maintaining its image as 100% stolid and happy and obvious, only by virtue of utter contingency. 8. Cute might be thought of as a watered-down version of pretty, which is a watered-down version of beautiful, which is a watered-down version of sublime, which is a watered-down version of terrifying. In this regard, the cute is akin to the ridiculous, which is a watered-down version of the absurd, which is again a watered-down version of that which terrifies. By extension, this suggests that all representation, whatever its stylistic bent, is tinged with an experience of terror. The terror of the convincingly ersatz, the killing disjuncture of the otherized, the pseudo-real. By extension, this suggests that all representation, whatever its stylistic bent, is tinged with an experience of terror. The terror of the convincingly ersatz, the killing disjuncture of the otherized, the pseudo-real. From 15 Theses on the Cute by Francis Richard. In the late 1970s, John Moore was diagnosed with and treated for a form of leukemia at UCLA Medical Center. In the course of his treatments, extensive amounts of blood, bone marrow, and bodily tissue were withdrawn from his body. Without his knowledge, these substances were used by physicians and others for research purposes. Also concealed from him 
was the expectation of his physician and his physician's colleagues of benefiting financially from the products of their research with his cells. His physician used his privileged relationship with Moore for exclusive access to substances from Moore's body. The extraction of these substances was not always directly related to Moore's ongoing treatment, but was part of this research activity. Based upon the research of Moore's physician's group, a patent on the cell line developed for Moore's cells was applied for and granted in 1984. Moore's rare cell line would be used to produce certain pharmaceuticals. Moore's physician and his partners, together with the UCLA Medical Center, owned the patent, sold rights for the commercial development of pharmaceuticals derived from Moore's cell line for a seven-figure amount. It had already been estimated that the sale of such pharmaceuticals would bring a multi-billion dollar yield within seven years. And when Moore learned of all of this, he brought suit for malpractice and property theft. He argued that he deserved some parts of the funds generated by the use of his own bodily substances, especially those taken for research and not for therapeutic purposes, and without his knowledge of their eventual use. The case went to the Supreme Court of California and Moore lost. His comment, I was harvested. The court acknowledged that the physicians had lied by telling Moore that no financial or commercial value could be derived from his blood and bodily substances. The court understood that the physicians had consistently concealed their plans for economic gain from Moore. Nonetheless, the court noted that the defendants who allegedly obtained the cells from the plaintiff by improper means can retain and exploit the full economic value of their ill-gotten gains free of liability. According to the Bible, the first important technological enterprise undertaken by human beings was the construction of the Tower of Babel. While scripture informs us that those who built the tower were punished for their sins, the text does not disclose the nature of their moral flaws. According to rabbinic legend, when the tower was being built, it was already quite high. It was difficult to get bricks to the top of the construction site in order to build still higher. At that point, if a brick fell and broke as it was being hoisted to the top, all the workers cried and mourned its loss, saying, how shall we get a brick to replace it? But when one of the workers fell off the tower and died, no one paid attention because workers were plentiful and easy to replace. Since May, I've been working for the Crows, and so far it's the best job I ever had. I kind of fell into it by a combination of preparedness and luck. I'd been casting around a bit, looking for a new direction in my career, and one afternoon when I was out on my walk, I happened to see some crows fly by. One of them landed on a telephone wire just above my head. I looked at him for a moment, and then on impulse, I made a ksh noise with my teeth and lips. He seemed to like that. I saw his tail make a quick upward bobbing motion at the sound. Encouraged, I made the noise again, and again his tail bobbed. He looked at me closely with one eye, then turned his beak and looked at me with the other, meanwhile readjusting his feet on the wire. After a few minutes, he cawed and flew off to join his companions. I had a good feeling I couldn't put into words. Basically, I thought the meeting had gone well, and as it turned out, I was right. When I got home, there was a message from the crows saying I had the job. That first interview proved indicative of the crows' business style. They are very informal and relaxed, unlike their public persona, and mostly they leave me alone. I'm given a general direction of what they want done, but the specifics of how to do it are up to me. For example, the crows have long been unhappy about public misperceptions of them, that they raid other birds' nests, drive songbirds away, 
eat garbage and dead things, can't sing, etc., all of which are completely untrue once you know them. My first task was to take these misperceptions and turn them into a more positive image. I decided the crows needed a slogan that emphasized their strengths as a species. The slogan I came up with was, Crows, we want to be your only bird. I told this to the crows. They loved it, and we've been using it ever since. Crows, we want to be your only bird. I think this slogan is worth repeating, because there's a lot behind it. Of course, the crows don't literally want or expect to be the only species of bird left on the planet. They admire and enjoy other kinds of birds, and even hope that there will still be some remaining in limited numbers out of doors, as well as in zoos and museums. But in terms of daily usage, the crows hope that you will think of them first when you're looking for those quality-of-life intangibles usually associated with birds. Singing, for example. Crows actually can sing, and beautifully too, however, so far they have not been given any chance. In the future, with fewer other birds around, they feel that they will be. Basil Bunting's Advice to Young Poets Number one, compose aloud, poetry is a sound. Number two, vary rhythm, enough to stir the emotion you want but not so as to lose impetus. Three, use spoken words and syntax. Four, fear adjective, they bleed nouns, hate the passive. Number five, jettison ornament gaily, but keep shape. Put your poem away till you forget it, then. Number six, cut out every word you dare. Seven, do it again a week later and again. Never explain. Your reader is as smart as you. In my eyes, grief dissolves. I ran like a deer. Tree gnawing wolves in my heart followed near. I left my antlers a long time ago, broken from my temples. They swing on a bough. Such I was myself. A deer I used to be. I shall be a wolf, that is what troubles me. A fine wolf I'm becoming, struck by magic while all my pack wolves are foaming. I stop and try to smile, prick up my ears as a roe gives her call, try to sleep, on my shoulders dark mulberry leaves fall. Compared with the average professional man, the artist has, so to say, 100% vocational psychology. That is, the creative type nominates itself at once as an artist, which marks the subordination of the individual to one of the prevailing art ideologies, this usually showing itself in the choice of some recognized master as the ideal pattern, in becoming the representative of an ideology. At first, his individuality vanishes, until later, At the height of his achievement, he strives once more to liberate his personality from the bonds of an ideology he has himself accepted and helped to form. This whole process of liberation is so particularly intense, exposing the artist to those dangerous crises which threaten his artistic development and his whole life. In this creative conflict, it is not only the positive tendency to individual self-liberation from ideologies once accepted and now overcome that plays a great part. There was also the creative guilt feeling, 
and this opposes their abandonment and seeks to tie down the individual in loyalty to his past. This loyalty is itself opposed by a demand for loyalty to his own self-development, which drives him onward. So the struggle of the artist against art is really only an ideologized continuation of the individual struggle against the collective. And yet it is this very fact of the ideologization of purely psychical conflicts that marks the difference between the productive and the unproductive types, the artist and the neurotic. For the neurotic's creative power, like the primitive artists, is always tied to his own self and exhausts itself in it. Whereas the productive type succeeds in changing this purely subjective creative process into an objective one, which means that through ideologizing it, he transfers it from his own self to his work, an actual artistic achievement, a characteristic quality of the unconforming type, both the productive artist and the thwarted neurotic, is an overstrong tendency towards a totality of experience. The so-called adaptability of the average man consists in a capacity for an extensive partial experience such as is demanded by everyday life, with its many and varied problems. The non-conforming type tends to concentrate its whole personality, its whole self, on each detail of experience, however trivial or insignificant. But as this is not only practically impossible, but psychically painful, because its effect is to bring out fear, this type protects itself from complete self-exhaustion by powerful inner restraints. Now the neurotic stops at this point in the process, thus cutting himself off from the world and experience. Faced with the proposition, all or nothing, he chooses the nothing. The artist, however, finds a constructive middle way. He avoids the complete loss of himself in life by living himself out entirely in creative work. All our lives we put off the big questions until they form a huge mountain which darkens our lives, but by then it is too late. We ought to have enough courage not to be afraid of other people or of ourselves. We ought not to spare them, to deceive them by sparing them. From Thomas Bernhard's Gathering Evidence. We enter a world which precedes us but is not made for us, and we have to cope with this world. But if we survive, we must take care to turn this world, which was a given world, but not made for us or ready for us. A world which is all set in any case because it was made by our predecessors to attack us and ruin us and finally destroy us, nothing else. We must turn it into a world to suit our own ideas, acting first behind the scenes, inconspicuously, but then with all our might and quite openly, so that we can say after a while that we're living in our own world, not in some previous world, one that is always bound to be of no concern to us and intent upon ruining and destroying us. From Thomas Bernhardt's Correction. My parents believed that they were bringing me up, but they actually destroyed me just as they destroyed my brother and my sisters. Instead of talking about bringing me up, they should have talked about bringing me down, thanks to their upbringing, which was purely and simply a process of destruction, as I have said, Everything in my mind was mutilated beyond recognition, to borrow a phrase that is normally used in a different context. From Thomas Bernhardt's Extinction. 
A wealthy and successful lawyer visited his childhood friend, Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman, and was appalled at the great Rosh Yeshiva's poverty. He exclaimed, Elchanan, you are much brighter than I am. Had you become a lawyer, you would be a wealthy man today. Rabbi Elchanan did not react to the comment. The old friends visited together for a few enjoyable hours, and then Rabbi Elchanan accompanied the man to his train. At the station, two trains were waiting, one a modern, comfortable one to the east, and another that was old and rickety. The lawyer, who was heading westward, walked toward the old train. Rabbi Elchanan asked him, why do you travel in such an uncomfortable train? Go to the luxurious new one. The friend stared at him incredulously and said, but I'm going in the other direction. Rabbi Elchanan ignored the comment. Nonetheless, isn't it better to travel in a comfortable plush train? The lawyer was exasperated. Elchanan, you speak nonsense. What good is a comfortable train if it is not taking me where I have to go? Rabbi Elchanan quietly required, listen to yourself. You are right. When you want to arrive at a certain destination, the comfort level of the vehicle doesn't mean much. The main thing is to get to where you have to be. Do you remember you asked me why I did not become a lawyer? Of course that career would have been more lucrative, but that's not my goal in life. What good is the comfort if I don't arrive where I want to be? Life is an overwhelming problem for an animal free of instinct. The individual has to protect himself from the world, and he can do this only as any other animal would, by narrowing down the world, shutting off experience, developing an obliviousness both to the terrors of the world and to his own anxieties. Otherwise, he would be crippled for action. We cannot repeat too often the great lesson of Freudian psychology, that repression is normal self-protection and creative self-restriction, in a real sense man's natural substitute for instinct. Rank has a perfect key term for this natural human talent. He calls it partialization and very rightly sees that life is impossible without it. What we call the well-adjusted man has just this capacity to partialize the world for comfortable action. We can say that the essence of normality is the refusal of reality. What we call neurosis enters precisely at this point. Some people have more trouble with their lies than others. The world is too much with them, and the techniques that they have developed for holding it at bay and cutting it down to size finally begin to choke the person himself. This is neurosis in a nutshell, the miscarriage of clumsy lies about reality. The artist also takes in the world, but instead of being oppressed by it, he reworks it in his own personality and recreates it in the work of art. The neurotic is precisely the one who cannot create, the artiste manqué, as Rank so aptly called him. We might say that both the neurotic and the artist bite off more than they can chew, but the artist spews it back out again and chews it over in an objectified way as an external, active work project. The neurotic's frustration as a failed artist can't be remedied by anything but an objective creative work of his own. There is no doubt that creative work is itself done under a compulsion often indistinguishable from a purely clinical obsession. In this sense, what we call a creative gift is merely the social license to be obsessed. To a certain extent, all of these, personal branding, low-wage or no-wage labor, etc., were trending upwards before my generation inherited them. What has changed in the post-collapse economy is breadth and depth. The fight for jobs, status, money, and stability has become even more desperate as all of these things have become scarcer and more upwardly concentrated. If you were born before 1982, take a moment to reflect on what those material conditions would mean for you. What does that do to a person, psychologically and emotionally? 
What would your life be like if even achieving relative comfort meant obsessively cultivating a personal brand, treating the opportunity to do any labor at all as a privilege, and viewing most of your peers as potential competitors in a long, grisly cage match? If 20 to 30-year-olds are more brutishly self-interested than their parents, and if, as I argue, this is a byproduct of growing up under neoliberalism and into an age of scarcity, then we might understand what's happening to young people as a sort of process of reverse corporate personhood. That is to say, in an increasingly competitive market defined by the ethics and conventions of the corporate world, young people rightly intuit that the most successful actors will be those who behave most like one-person corporate entities. Once upon a time, Chidr, the teacher of Moses, called upon mankind with a warning. At a certain date, he said, all the water in the world, which had not been specially hoarded, would disappear. It would then be renewed with different water, which would drive men mad. Only one man listened to the meaning of this advice. He collected water and went to a secure place where he stored it and waited for the water to change its character. On the appointed date, the streams stopped running, the wells went dry, and the man who had listened, seeing this happening went to his retreat and drank his preserved water. When he saw from his security the waterfalls again beginning to flow, this man descended among the other sons of men. He found that they were thinking and talking in an entirely different way from before, yet they had no memory of what had happened, nor of having been warned. When he tried to talk to them, he realized that they thought he was mad, and they showed hostility or compassion, not understanding. At first, he drank none of the new water, but went back to his concealment to draw on his supplies every day. Finally, however, he took the decision to drink the new water because he could not bear the loneliness of living, behaving, and thinking in a different way from everyone else. He drank the new water and became like the rest. Then he forgot all about his own store of special water, and his fellows began to look upon him as a madman who had miraculously been restored to sanity. Once there was a man, and on his shoulders he had, instead of a head, a hollow pumpkin. This was no great help to him, yet he still wanted to be number one. That's the sort of person he was. For a tongue, he had an oak leaf hanging from his mouth, and his teeth were cut out with a knife. Instead of eyes, he had two round holes. Back of the holes, two candle stumps flickered. Those were his eyes. They didn't help him see far. And yet, he said, his eyes were better than anyone's, the braggart. On his pumpkin head, he wore a tall hat, used to take it off when anyone spoke to him. He was so polite. Once this man went for a walk, but the wind blew so hard that his eyes went out. He wanted to cry with his candle ends because he couldn't find his way home. So now he sat there, held his pumpkin head between his hands, and wanted to die. But dying didn't come to him so easily. First there had to come a June bug, which ate the oak leaf from his mouth. There had to come a bird which pecked a hole in his pumpkin head. There had to come a child who took away the two candle stumps. Then he could die. The bug is still eating the leaf, the bird is pecking still, and the child is playing with the candle stumps. Success is the ethical quagmire par excellence of commodity culture because it jeopardizes our relation to dissent, to resistance, to saying no. As fame is precisely about what one is willing to do, how far one is willing to go, and how much, low in the form of high, going low in order to get high, one is willing to say yes to. The road to fame is made up of ascent. 
That is what gets you to the literal and figurative top. And this is why fame is almost always a parable about losing, not finding one's way, about being led astray. Making it is not the struggle to become, as it's always been said, but the willingness to be made. In the dark times, will there also be singing? Yes, there will be singing about the dark times. Other David Bermans, read by Carolyn Kendrick, was posted to Menthol Mountains by David Cloud Berman on May 29, 2019. The Job Application by Robert Walzer, read by Sean Nelson, was posted by DCB on January 22, 2019. Man in Camel by Mark Strand, read by Bess Winter, was posted without title by DCB on August 23, 2012. Excerpt from Human, All Too Human by Friedrich Nietzsche, read by Kevin Guthrie, was posted by DCB on June 9, 2011. The Untitled Parable About a Rich Man from Kuznets, read by Aaron Ray, was posted without a title by DCB on June 18, 2013. Shel Silverstein's Someone Ate the Baby, read by Luke Kennard, was posted by DCB on October 30, 2011. The Same Jew, read by Jess Skolnick, was posted without attribution by DCB on February 10, 2011. Excerpts from Mark Twain's essay, Concerning the Interview, read by Tyler Meehan Co., was posted by DCB, January 24, 2011. Excerpts from 15 Theses on the Cute, by Francis Richard, read by Sarah Marshall, was posted by DCB on June 13, 2012. Excerpt of Golems Among Us, by Byron Sherwin, read by Kevin Christie, was posted by DCB on October 22, 2013. Excerpts from Ian Fraser's essay, Count on Crows, read by Caitlin Rose, was posted by DCB on October 19, 2011. Basil Bunting's Advice to Young Poets, read by Carolyn Kendrick, was posted by DCB February 22, 2011. Attila Joseph's Grief, read by Luke Kennard, was posted by DCB on June 30, 2019. Excerpt from Art and the Artist by Otto Rank, read by Jack Evan Johnson, was posted with the title The Artists Fight with Art by DCB on June 24, 2019. Thomas Bernhard Quotes, read by Tyler Meehan Co., was posted by DCB July 26, 2019. Successful Lawyer Parable from the Perke Avos Treasury, read by Jess Skolnick, was posted by DCB with the title The Uncomfortable Train on January 29, 2011. Excerpt from Ernest Becker's Denial of Death, read by Thomas Brian Eaton, was posted by DCB with the title Neurosis in a Nutshell on February 12, 2011. Excerpts from Manufacturing Generation Me, by Ned Resnikoff, read by Sarah Marshall, was posted by DCB on June 24, 2012, with the extraordinarily Bermanesque title, one, liquidate society, two, denigrate community, three, promulgate rapicity, four, castigate your progeny.
Unattributed Sufi Folktale, read by Sean Nelson, was posted by DCB on December 10th, 2018. The Man with the Pumpkin Head, by Robert Walsner, read by Aaron Ray, was posted by DCB on June 23rd, 2019. Excerpt from Becoming Object, by Masha Tupitson, read by Jack Evan Johnson, was posted by DCB on June 16th, 2013. Bertolt Brecht excerpt, read by Carolyn Kendrick, was posted on February 4th, 2011. All right, everybody, that is it for this episode of National Demystified. Thank you to all of the folks who read on this episode. Again, Caitlin Rose, Tyler Meehan Co., Aaron Ray, Jess Skolnick, Sean Nelson, Sarah Marshall, Jack Evan Johnson, Bess Winter, Luke Kennard, Thomas Brian Eaton, Carolyn Kendrick, and Kevin Guthrie. Thank you so much to Cameron Davidson, who made this sound good. Um, he had a lot of work <laughs> in this particular episode, and I appreciate everything you did. Thank you, David Berman, for putting this out into the world. I really appreciate it. To Knack Factory and to We Own This Town. All right. I hope you'll join me uh, me next time. Thank you so much for sticking around for this one. Take care. All.